Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about question eight of the 12 discipleship questions. We're getting really close to the end, Uh, so that'll be fun. But before we do that, we have some other things to do that aren't the normal business that we do. So as I was reading this morning, I just come up with some things that I wanted to do. So these guys are at the mercy of, uh, of my whims. So number one, I told them a few moments ago I was going to add some spice. And then I said literally, and that actually was figuratively because I don't actually have any spices. But I was going to mention that. but Yeah. <laughs> so, but I do want to ask you, I was at a coffee shop this morning. What are your thoughts on the pumpkin spice fad? Ooh, it's, it's hard. I really like eggnog latte is better than pumpkin spice, but I do like pumpkin spice. I have to admit it. You I like really pumpkin do. spice? Do you I like order it. it and put it at like order coffee drinks with pumpkin spice? Yes. Not really. Like if, if we're you out, do? if we're out, you personally, I like pumpkin spice. Wow. It's, good. it's really good. If we're out and about like shopping or something or we're downtown at farmer's market or I don't know if we're out and about, I'll get a pumpkin spice latte. I'll I, admit it. Interesting. Eggnog lattes are a little better in my opinion. I love eggnog lattes. I like smoky rose pumpkin spice latte. All right. Now I will say though, if I'm ordering a PSL, okay. It's not because I did want. Did you just shorten pumpkin? <laughs> I did. That's right. PSL. Have you not seen the memes? Come on. No. Man. No. Oh, come on. The memes are hilarious. I'm not a memer. But if I'm ordering it, it's not my main cup of coffee for the day. It's like I'm having dessert. That's it. That's how yeah. I view it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's, we even have the pumpkin pie flavoring in our home so that if we wanted to, we can make a pumpkin spice-ish kind of latte at home. So listener, there's just, I have to. Just observe to you, I think Charlie is as maybe perhaps dumbfounded as we've mm-hmm. ever seen him. Yeah. So now I want to ask you what you think of it. Yeah, no, we don't want to ask Imagining him. Imagine we next don't question. know. So the, what, the, what, you you're, know what, what you're think. viewing as, from my reaction, is dumbfounded. I'm actually just pleased that this has stimulated some interesting <laughs> conversation. I, did, I thought it was going to be like, no, no. And then, but I'm, I'm glad there's actually some... Uh, PSL is like the best I could have ever hoped to get out of that. <laughs> well, do was you, an acronym for pumpkin do you, spice. I mean, you're kind of keto these days, but do you? Uh, I do you enjoy it on a, as a guilty pleasure, Charlie? No. Okay, it's not really your thing. I mean, I don't dislike it, but there's so many other things I think I would do first. Like what? Mocha. Yeah. Or mm. I, breve. I just like a vanilla latte. Is, oh, those are good. Which is not what I normally get. If anyone from Porchlight is listening to this, you know that on a regular basis, I spend $2.91 on a small light roast with heavy whipping cream. Oof, so good. Yeah, and as I told them the other day, they someone asked me, I think it was the barista, Natalie. I, know, I try to know all of their names. And so they asked me, is this color good? And I said, well, I typically like, I go for like a Beyonce color. And uh, they thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Oh my word. Yeah, it is pretty horrendous. Anyway, (laughs) so uh, no, but I do like the eggnog. Joel at Porchlight informs me like usually in Mm -hmm. advance of like, hey, Charlie, next whatever is when we're getting our first eggnog and I'll get an eggnog latte on that day. 
I have a question. Actually, more of an admission. So it took me until this moment to catch your pun. The spice? Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna add spice to the episode. I just so I did that add literal, like because I, I talked about spice. Did you I catch it, Tim? Actually, no. Tim's like I didn't catch it. <laughs> it was a deep fake. Anyway, I'm um, gonna give you like a a coffee emoji for that one and a pumpkin emoji. Good job. Very good. So that leads me to my next thing I want to talk about, which I was thinking about this earlier, where we did the first installment of Thinklings trivia a while back, and we never did it again. So we're gonna do. Round oh two Here it goes. of Thinkling's Trivia. Now, this, this has to be on your honor because we don't have like whiteboards or anything, but I have a, a very specific question. I'm going to read an article title okay. that released in the last... When, listener, when you're listening to this, it may be more than the amount of time I'm saying, but this is within the last couple of days. This was an article title that I found perusing the internet, and I thought, man, that's hilarious. And then so... I'm going to read the title. The title is Italy's new leader is a very weird Tolkien obsessed right wing extremist. Let me read that again. Italy's new leader is a very weird Tolkien obsessed right wing extremist. And the trivia question, which probably neither of you will get is who are they talking about? I have no idea. Uh, it's the new prime minister of Italy who said people are afraid of us because we have families. And if you can deconstruct the family, you become the perfect consumer. I just watched her video the other day, but I don't know why it has anything to Tolkien. She's a Christian, a mom and a something. So maybe she's in Italy and she's so that, Catholic. That's what that's. What, so it's a really cool video. So, uh, Tim admitted he has no chance of getting this. Andy, I think you win just because you're Closer. Uh, it's. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, I'm but two it for is. Two, the, Tim. It is what will probably be. Did she actually win the election I, or whatever? I don't know. I just saw the videos snippets of her saying yeah. like it's okay to have a family and be a Christian. Possibly <laughs> the new mom. prime minister of Italy, Georgia Meloni, and this is what the article says: an ultra conservative leader known for her opposition to gay rights and immigration, etc., etc., etc. But then third paragraph in. This is what caught me was the. Tolkien obsessed. Maloney is also completely obsessed with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings regarding the series, which has been venerated by Italian fascists for decades. Fascists. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah. Nice, Are you yeah. nice association. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, you're kidding me. She <laughs> as, did win. As an almost biblical text. Oh, wow. So, so get what's interesting about this article Italian fascists revere, venerate The Lord of the Rings almost. Like a biblical text. That's what the article says. In her early 20s, Maloney haunted the web as, quote, Kyrie, the dragon of the undernet. Like, apparently that's a self-proclaimed title that she gave herself. Like, she's a dragon and somehow that's influenced, influenced by Tolkien. I thought that was so fascinating. I had to find a way to work it into the episode. Is, is Kyrie, K-Y-R-I-E? Yes. Lord. Lord the dragon. Is that what oh. that... <laughs> oh, like yeah. the song Kyrie Ellison is Lord have mercy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, this is Lord great. Dragon. This is great. <laughs> She's the Lord Dragon. So, okay, uh, I can't remember who won the trivia last time. He did. So, and Andy's on a perfect sweep of Thinkling's trivia. I'm two for two. And I'll just say this: if you have a if you have a trivia question that you think would be appropriate for Thinkling's trivia, 
go ahead and email us at Thinklings. Po- Actually, no, don't email it to Thinklings Podcast. Email it to Carter C at Faith.edu. Then Tim and Andy can't see it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> like we ever get in there. That's you- that's valid. Hey, well, it's true. <laughs> okay, so now that we're eight minutes in, now we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's get to some real books here. Uh, some actual stuff. <laughs> so, um, book I've been reading, Is There a Meaning in This Text? by Kevin Van Uzer. The Bible, the Reader, and the Morality of Literary Knowledge. It is a staple book in hermeneutics, discussions, or classes. I first read it somewhere in college or seminary uh, and thought it was atrocious mainly because of its length and complexity, not because of what it actually says. And now I've reread it. Uh, this is, will be the third time going into a reread and realizing that it is quite good for what it is outlying. But it is, it is very complex, but it's, it gets into details of things that are, that are helpful. And uh, there's a couple of thoughts here as he gets into talking about deconstruction in the first main part of the book. And uh, so I want to ask Andy a question. What is the famous paradigm that people learn in Greek? Well, and there's a whole bunch of paradigms. But, but like the first verbal paradigm. Oh, the present active indicative verbs. What's the word that's used? Luo. To Luo, release. Yeah, to release. Yeah. So where this comes up is that that is the basis for the word analysis. Ah would be the negation. Oh. Ah, luo to unloose something, interesting. Rather than loose it, and that came up in a conversation of deconstruction, where he defines it as deconstruction is an intense analytical unloosing Ooh. method, Ooh. occasionally perversely so, that results in the collapse from within of all that it touches. That was uh, one quote on deconstruction that Van Hooser gave, and I just thought it was really interesting. As he was describing it, he went into, this is what an analysis means. It's an unloosing. And it's an interesting illustration for what deconstructionism does. Hmm. Is you imagine something that's tightly bound together as a, as a metaphor. Like think about tying your shoes or wrapping a present, tying a bow on it. It's all nice. And, you know, there's your argument. And what deconstruction tries to do, this is where the illustration breaks down. They don't try to do it from outside, like pulling the string and unknotting it. They actually try to do it from within. So like they try to get inside the argument and pretty much blow up every premise you make or the, the bias you have towards things. And effectively, what are the, what, what's the goal is, uh, you know, to go back to the quote, it's intense analysis, sometimes perverse. And what is it doing? It's trying to collapse your idea from within. Uh, so to deconstruct it, you know. So but I thought that was an interesting... Uh, he, I, I thought it was an effective way of teaching when he's the point he's making by explaining what the word analysis means. Like that's what deconstruction is doing. It's unloosing your argument from within. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was a good thought. But then another thought I had as I was reading was just thinking through what deconstruction is. Is like what would keep a deconstructionist from deconstructing their own argument? And would they claim that their argument is the right argument? against all other arguments that deconstruction is the only way to interpret. And then the moment they do that, they've then unloosed their own like standing 
it's like, but then so deconstruction is worthless if you can deconstruct it. And so this is kind of the, the road that I was going down in my mind. And uh, obviously we know and believe that deconstruction is a big problem, but how, how it's like not even logically consistent. How if someone was willing to tell me from within my own arguments that, well, it's just bias. Those are unneeded dichotomies or, or definitions that you're applying to something to find meaning. I could just flip that script right around and say that of a deconstructionist. And the only way that they're logically consistent is then to agree with me. Yep. Unfounding their whole mm-hmm. method. Yep. Um, so if you want to read that, it's in the part one of Is There a Meaning in This Text by Kevin Van Hooser. Found that to be great stimulating reading this morning. So yeah, there's my book. My book is Worthy by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher, uh, celebrating the value of women. So in this uh, episode, I want to interact with uh, what they, how they interpret Ezer in Genesis 2.20. Kind of alluded to this last week. They um, verse under question. So Adam gave names to all cattle, cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So this idea of the helper, what does that communicate? And then how does that coincide to um, the calling of woman? And this is something that I would encourage you to study out. I'm not going to get into a full episode here on this, but um, what is it that that God has called uh, a woman to? This actually has massive the- theological and practical theological uh, applications, and there's even some intertestamental discussion concerning it. And I'm going to allude to the discussion today, um, but historically this has been understood that she's a helper to Adam. So Adam has his mission, he's going to do what he's going to do, and then uh, God gives Adam a woman to help him accomplish his mission. Uh, the um, worthy in this book, and it's actually a common egalitarian argument, is that that's actually not the case. In fact, the the helper is not to help the man accomplish his mission, but to help accomplish the mission. Okay, do you see the difference? So in the book, they work through that. Um, they work through the text, and they kind of... Um, explain helper, I think pretty well, but they say that it's uh, help in the priestly service of God. Uh, So God made the woman to be helpers in the priestly service of God on page 36. Then they state, we have this remarkable conclusion. God created women to be royal rulers and priestly servants in his kingdom, royalty rulers and priestly service. Those probably are not among the first words that come to mind when you think about woman, but they should be. God is in the business of creating and redeeming a kingdom of priests, and women are right there in the mix of of it. So uh, what is it that uh, God has um, made woman to do? Now, there's some interesting linguistics in uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. You have man, uh, he's called Adam. Uh, Adam, and Adam comes from the Adama. Uh, Adama is the Hebrew word for ground. Notice the ah ending. The ah ending is feminine. So you have the feminine ground, and Adam comes from the Adama, ground. And then similarly, you have the man who is Ish. And after woman is created, he names her Isha. 
And this play on words, it coincides and continues into Genesis chapter 3, and it's one of the reasons why complementarians have asserted that complementarianism preceded the fall. And that's one of the things that egalitarians seek to undo. They say that before the fall, there was equality between the genders. So um, I don't want to get into all of that completely, but this whole idea that where does Adam come from? He comes from the Adama. Where does woman come from? She comes from the Ish. And I think that's actually part of the argument, as well as the naming of the woman, which by the way, they don't like that and they disagree with that exegesis, but I don't want to get into that right now. Okay, so back to this whole thing. What is it that God's called a woman to do? Has she been called to help the man accomplish the mission? Or has she been called to be a co-laborer in uh, accomplishing the mission? Hopefully you see the difference there. Now, um, pr throughout Prover or the Old Testament, the Old Testament is viewed as a very patriarchal, patricentric culture. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, you know, the woman has a desire for the man uh, that he will rule over her. And how is that to be understood? We might come back and visit that again, but it's commonly assumed by egalitarians that, uh, um, that uh, that's when things went awry. Originally, they were supposed to be co-equals, but then after the fall, the man uses his power and authority to coerce the woman. Um, so that's kind of where things messed up. And that's another conversation. I disagree with their exegesis. I'm going to talk about that again in a future episode. But for today, getting into the calling, what is she called to do? Uh, later on in page 77, uh, they talk about the woman's calling. And they make a distinction actually between a woman's calling in the Old Testament and a woman's calling in the New Testament. They make a big deal about in the Old Testament, you know, there's the Proto-Evangelium in, in Genesis 3.15. Okay, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so a woman found her identity and meaning in having children and raising a home and so on and so forth. And I, I, I thought it was, this part was, I thought, kind of interesting where they actually agreed that that was like the original calling of a woman. And then here's this uh, statement that they make in, on page 77. In Old Testament times, women viewed their primary role as building God's kingdom through the birth of the promised one. Okay, that. Their primary role is building God's kingdom through the birth of the promised one. By the way, I'm not agreeing here. I'm just reading what they're saying. Their entire identity was intertwined with successfully expanding their husband's importance and property by giving him sons and, hopefully, by giving birth to the promised deliverer. Now, if you read through Proverbs 31, you'll actually see that that was um, a virtue. That was the idea of the Proverbs 31 woman. Is that what is she doing? Okay, she's building up her house. Well, what is her house? It's her husband's house. Okay, so there's actually a lot of validity to that. That's why it gets into what is a woman called to? What is her calling? And if that is a woman's calling, it seems to correspond to Genesis 2. Well, man needs a helper. Well, here's somebody that's going to help him. How are we doing? Are you guys following this? Yeah. Okay. All right, so then they continue and they say, this was nearly the entire measure of their success or failure as a faithful woman, which is why it was so devastating for a woman to not be able to have children. It was crushing. It's like, God, you've created me to do this thing and now I can't do it. 
Uh, that's why you see that theme throughout the Old Testament. Continuing, now they have this part in italics. Now, however, since the promised son has come, a woman's identity is no longer contingent upon her giving birth to sons. Of course, that's not to say that having sons or children isn't a blessed vocation for those called to it. It's just that now, because the Messiah has come, a woman's call is to expand God's kingdom through many different vocations. Okay, so there's no scripture passages here, and I don't know if they're going to uh, connect this or relate it to any kind of New Testament theology, actually have a textual basis for it, but they're literally stating a woman's call is now different. It's changed after the incarnation. A woman was called to build up her husband's house, which is actually what I have articulated and communicated in a study of Proverbs 31. That's a woman's calling, but in the in the New Testament, they're saying a new calling. I'm like, do you have any exegetical basis for that? Does that affect the relationship between men and women in the New Testament? Most definitely. Okay. Does that affect a relationship between a pastor and how he's teaching and ministering to men and women in his church? Definitely. Okay. This has massive implications for um, uh, philosophy of ministry within the church. Okay, so that gets into even another conversation. What can, or how does a woman go about learning in the church? All right, the Bible has some things to say about that. Um, and and uh, it has a lot to do with her husband, okay? Uh, so men and women and their relationship in the church. Um, anyway, I won't get into that. I've already gone for quite a while. So you can kind of see just um, this whole idea of complementarianism and egalitarianism. Complementarian, by the way, I should maybe explain, it's like the, the genders complement one another. Egalitarianism is that they're equal. Uh, so there's an egalitarian equality between the genders. And uh, I believe that the Bible is complementarian. I don't believe that it is egalitarian. And it's a big topic. Uh, but what, and what we've seen in the last few years is there was a recognition within broader evangelicalism and a, and a support for complementarianism, and that seems to be diminishing substantially. Any feedback on any of that? Yikes. Well, <laughs> careful. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that it sounds like they're they're admitting in the Old Testament that everything is the same as we've always been saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then they're making the big shift when Christ mm -hmm. comes, and then the way they're tying that back to make the basis of their argument that there's a change is the proto-evangelium, the seed crushing right. the serpent, and now that the seed's here, mm -hmm. but they don't have, but so far you haven't, because you're working through the solo, you have mm -hmm. not found what their arguments are that there's a change. They're mm -hmm. just, it's more of like a. So yeah. I started reading Jesus and Gender, which is the book that they just released this year. And they talk about a hermeneutic, a Christic interpretation. Okay. okay. So I wasn't going to say this, but this reminds me of William Webb's yep. trajectory hermeneutic yeah, the whole it. time. And I'm like, is this a trajectory hermeneutic? Yeah, but it, what do you mean when you say that? So trajectory William hermeneutic. Webb is famous for a book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, where he says in the Old Testament, look at the way the Bible talks about slavery. And then look at the way the Bible talks about slavery in the New Testament, and there's an improvement. There's like a trajectory of improvement. And now look at what we think today about slaves. We think it's totally wrong. Then he takes the case of women, he says in the Old Testament, and he overstates it. They're a little better than pond scum. In the New Testament, they have more rights. But nowadays, we're egalitarian, and we right. know this is okay. Yeah. Then he says, 
it's the same. It's there's a hermeneutic in the Bible where things grow in knowledge. Right. And so the trajectory allows us to say this is good. And so he does the same thing with homosexuality. Sounds in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's uh it's a sin, but now we know it's okay for no, people. No, he doesn't go to the homosexuality one, I didn't think. That's why the book's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. Yeah, I, I think thought. he made the distinction and stopped it. I didn't think he did. I so he was to, arguing for egalitarianism? He was arguing for egalitarianism, but not for oh, a homosexual agenda. I thought it was the homosexual agenda. No, okay. I think somebody I've not else. Read it. I've, I heard someone give a, a lecture on it. They've taken that hermeneutic. Others have taken that same hermeneutic, though. While he rejected the homosexual view, I guess I should review it. I'm pretty sure okay. it wasn't. He didn't go that far. And okay. then he, uh, others have taken his, his okay. hermeneutic. Either way, though, it's it's, it's us, trajectory. It's us today yeah. saying we know this is true, mm-hmm. but we don't have good biblical reason for it. But we're simply saying there's a trajectory in the Bible that right. justifies it. Right. Yeah. So some of what you just said there, Andy, it just seems like that's a really convenient conclusion mm. that also happens to really fit with an egalitarian position. Mm-hmm. And has almost no logical basis. Like there's no exegesis that supports it. Even just like, why is the role of a woman today different? The incarnation. Well, that's what they're going to argue in the Jesus and gender. And they're yeah. going to go to some texts. They do okay. go to some texts. I'm excited for part two. Because like, that seems so shaky, like the argument they're making. Mm-hmm. And not really backing it up. And it... It just, you know, obviously from our standpoint, I know what I would be accused of, like if I was to make this accusation, but you're reading your position into, like you, you're, mm-hmm. you're really looking for a reason for egalitarianism to be correct. Yeah. Somebody said something about breathing the cultural air. And so oh, their exegesis and interpretation is really breathing the cultural air. Um, so anyway. But you're not saying there's not. You're saying you're partway through really the book. I bet they really love pumpkin spice. And that there is possibly some arguments coming <laughs> yet because you're not finished. So we're not saying they have yeah. no exegetical arguments. We're saying yeah. you just haven't got there. Well, yet. It, so I mean, I'm interested you... to see what they do with it. Yeah. Because at this point, it's like, ooh, that's why I said yikes. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why, how are they arguing that? You know? well, so, I mean, I know we have several uh, women that listen to our podcast. And I just wanted to, again, just caution you just to realize, you know, these ideas, they seem novel and they seem, and they can seem very accurate and true and right. They're actually nothing new. Uh, I'm going to get into that, I think, a little bit. You know, Phyllis Tribble was one of the leading feminists back in the 70s and Claudia Van Camp as well. They've articulated all of this stuff. Um, and so there's not a whole lot of dissimilarity. Uh, we're just about 50 years behind, uh, the curve. So anyway, uh, we'll, we'll interact with it some more. Um, but the Christic interpretation might be a little bit new, but again, like you, so it's funny that you connected it to Webb's trajectory hermeneutic. Cause I did the same exact thing. I'm like, this just sounds like trajectory That's hermeneutic, <laughs> which was going on 25 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. it just kind of reinforces the point again, you know, there's nothing new under and, the sun. You know, it might seem like, wow, that's really believable. Well, they're going to, put it from like a progressive covenantalism, I think, perspective. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. Okay. And then how can you fight against Jesus? It's a Christic interpretation and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think we've misunderstood the actual text. Let's go back to the Old Testament and then see a proper view of progressive revelation that does not contradict previous revelation. And uh, let's think about these things more biblically. You know what that is right there? What? It's pretty spicy. 
Ooh. I was gonna say just that trajectory idea it just sounds like when you hear people say like do you really want to be on the wrong side of history yeah like, I don't ever heard someone and say that but yeah we need to keep going but. so I listened to the fourth Chronicles of Narnia Silver Chair it was great I give it a nine <laughs> that's all you got where do you rank look it? at the time we'll do we'll do it well he time. said he had a shorter episode oh, yeah, today short. talk say sit are you sure more. you really have oh it's that short yeah Oh, it's very, it's pretty short. Oh, I'm fine. I mean, I was just going to take a I, couple minutes. Okay. I really, I remember reading the Chronicles before I taught the first edition of C.S. Lewis, the first time we taught it. And I remember thinking, I didn't know which was my favorite, Don Treader or the horse and his boy. And I remember thinking of the silver chair thinking, meh, it was just okay. This time I listened through it. I mean, it might've become my favorite. The thing is amazing. And there's layers and layers and layers of, of stuff in it. So this is my second time through it or third. I can't remember what I would say is, uh, I'm definitely giving it a nine. I almost want to give it a 10. I don't know if we've ever given it. I just don't know if you can give that book a 10, but I'm gonna say it's a solid nine, but it's, it's an, it's like a rating based on other things. So I don't want to give anything away in the climax of the book. The good guy fights the bad guy. As always, there's a showdown. And this time, reading through it, I think Lewis was approaching the how do I know God exists question in the way the conversation goes between the hero and the villain. And I think he was answering the problem of evil. It's, um, it was like shocking to see it. So I think that Lewis's previous apologetics experience was floating underneath this big showdown. And then just, Puddleglum. I hadn't heard Puddleglum for so long. It was great. So there's a lot of the book that was really good. And of course, if you know anything about Platonic philosophy, Lewis's Platonism is all throughout. It's, it's, you know, if you've heard of the myth of the, or the, uh, Plato's cave, it's almost like it's the whole book. There's, there's gigantic ideas in there. So anyways, I really liked it. I thought it was great. And, uh, horrendous. I would highly rank rate it and recommend and recommend it. So that's all. Puddle Glum is a great character. He really is. He, yeah. And we we call Dr. Boyd, Dr. Puddle Glum. And I just, I knew that was it. But after listening to the book again, it's, Dr. Boyd, we love you. But man, you really are Puddle Glum. <laughs> it's like Sh- to a T. Shout out to Dr. Boyd. That's right. Who this morning I realized, oh, there's a, a, a book or I don't know if it qualifies as a book, but there's a, there's something I need to read of Plato. And I was like, hmm. So I text Dr. Boyd, hey, what would be the translation of this that I would need? And like within seconds, is like, oh, this is the like academic translation of that you're going to want from this publisher. Like just knows it. I'm like, yeah. Good old Dr. Boyd. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, so we need to have him back on here. And we have discussions to that extent. But Hey, this week's uh, Fundamental Lit is going to be on Dante's Inferno. Have yes, it is. Have you started it? <laughs> I haven't. Doesn't I'm going to be gone. So oh, this bummer. is next week. No, it's tomorrow. Oh, that's right. This episode's this not going to air until next week. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, yeah. listener, last week we read Dante's Inferno <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> and Charlie was gone. Kind of roasty. <laughs> uh, horrendous. <laughs> are we ready to, to bridge the gap here? So now let's have another conversation about discipleship. Okay, so we're on a discipleship question number eight. And 
if you remember how it's kind of it's it's designed to be repetitive, but kind of come at the ideas from maybe a different perspective. So section one, we're kind of just point blank talking about desires and what's going on inside of us and trying to discern our loves, all of, of that discussion. And section two of the discipleship questions is, is really just looking at the exact same thing, even using the same passages, but we're trying to then almost redefine, not, not redefine, but using another scriptural idea to highlight the same truth. And now, so section two is framing our loves and our desires and what God's doing inside of us and the transformation he's trying to accomplish. It's framing all of that through pneumatology. So thinking about our relationship to the Holy Spirit, that, that's section two. And, uh, you know, what is walking in the spirit? We had a pretty robust conversation about that. So question seven is, how do I know if I'm walking in the spirit? And then question eight, if I'm not walking in the spirit, what am I walking in? And I, I think that's a great illustration. You know, like you ever walk in somewhere and you stepped in something? Um, you ever had gum on the bottom of your shoe? Or, you know, the it's kind of like the stereotypical, like someone comes out of the bathroom and there's like a big old trail of toilet paper on their shoe or something <laughs> like that. Or, you know, uh, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but growing up in the Midwest and being around farms, there's sometimes things that come out of animals that you step into and you know that it's there because you can smell it. And uh, that's lovely. And so, you know, I, I like that metaphor of like, oh. How do you know if you're walking? Well, what's on your shoe? But um, so going back to question seven, we answered that as, you know, you'd see fruit. Like if you're walking in the spirit, you're going to see fruit of the spirit. And, and another way of saying it is you might smell that the spirit's there, which, you know, we kind of chuckle at that metaphor, but Paul is going to use that metaphor coming up shortly. Different kind of smell. Exactly the same <laughs> metaphor of smell. Um, obviously not that of excrement, but... <laughs> Because the spirit would be, the spirit probably smells like pumpkin spice. So something like that. <laughs> um, so then, so if you discern from your reactions to trials, you, you come to the conclusion, you know, I, I don't think that I respond in yielding to the spirit. I'm commonly not filled by the spirit with his fruit. I commonly react and the flesh is in control and I do fleshly things. If that's the conclusion that you're, you're, you reach, like I'm not walking in the spirit. So I question eight, it's very simple. And it's just trying to present the other side of the coin. Like if you know that you're not under the control of the Holy Spirit, I do think that there is a sanctification benefit to clarifying and considering what you are then walking in. Like if I'm not walking under the control of the spirit, there's not a lot of other options. And this is, gets into anthropology as well, that we're not neutral beings. Uh, there's never a moment where you're just hanging out completely morally neutral. You have a heart that is desperately wicked and it's still there after conversion. And we have the word of God and the spirit of God to help transform us into the image of Christ. But when that spirit is not in control and I'm disobeying God's word, it's not like I'm just hanging out by the pool chilling there's actually another force at work. And I think it's helpful to recognize anytime I'm not controlled by God's spirit, I'm controlled by my flesh. Hmm. 
And that's such a simple thought. It's self-evident. Um, you know, going back to, is there a meaning in the text? A deconstructionist would say that I've, uh, I've created a dichotomy that need not exist, that I've done that to ascribe meaning to terms, and they don't really mean that. Well, I think the Bible clearly presents that there are two options, flesh or spirit. And you can hmm. go to Galatians 5 to find that. If you are under the control of one, you are not under the control of the other. Hmm. If you're wondering if you're walking in the spirit and you're not discerning fruit of the spirit, you're not obeying God's word, and you maybe are discerning fruit of something else, like what is going on? In the same way that you would yield to the word of God and the spirit of God to be walking under the spirit's control, in that same function you have yielded, given in to your fleshly desires, and the flesh is completely in control. And I think that's really valuable to understand. Usually, when people realize that, their typical reaction is to blame. So like when they see that they're not being loving or joyful or they're not being peaceful, they're, they're seeing a lack of Holy Spirit fruit. They're seeing maybe the direct or indirect results of the flesh. We very commonly like to say, well, the only reason I'm doing that is because Tim said this or Andy did that, you know, or whatever, whatever. And those are lies. If I'm not walking in the spirit, it's not, well, I acted the way I acted because my wife said, or my friend did, or this happened to me, some circumstance. Uh, scripture draws very clear categories of why you're then doing what you're doing. Hmm. You are acting the way you're acting because of the flesh. <laughs> That's just that simple. And, uh, and I think sometimes we casually like to avoid that. Hmm. Like it doesn't feel good to admit or even focus on our own failure when we sin. But that is exactly what is happening when I'm not walking in the spirit. And it's just, it's the quickest path to transformation to recognize that if you're not walking in the spirit, you're under the control of the flesh. And it's just that simple. So very simple idea. We could talk more about that. Um, I do want to just, you know, hey, what do you guys think about that? So maybe ruminate on a comment or two. I'll just say this. This morning when, I think this is, I don't like to use the word powerful. I was about to say, this is why this is powerful. Well, it's powerful because it's the spirit of God and it's the word of God. But I was reviewing for this this morning and I have some other circumstances happening. I've had some communication from people and I've, I was frustrated with that. And I kind of compartmentalized that or tried to, and I'm like, okay, let's review for the podcast. And it's like, it's like literally the chapter in the book that is chapter eight is like four paragraphs. It's the shortest one by far. <laughs> and I got like halfway into the second paragraph and I'm just like, Charlie, this is you. 100%. Like, this mm. is you right now. Like, mm -hmm. those emotions, those desires, they're not the spirit. So what are they, Charlie? And like, you're coaching yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that's why this is so helpful. Just like to simplify the problem. Mm -hmm. It's not, they're the problem, that circumstance is the problem. You know, all of these random details of what could be going wrong in your life. Mm. Boil it down to one very simple question. Is it the spirit or not? And I was confronted with that. And it was like, 
No, Charlie, that's your flesh. <laughs> and just like the immediate freedom of, of God's word and his spirit that kind of hit me in that moment at the coffee shop. I'm like, man, that's, that is just so helpful just to simple and know, okay, now I know exactly what is going on. They're not my problem. You just need to confess and repent. And until you can, can do that consistently, you will struggle with this. And that's going to be a while. You're going you're gonna to be upset and frustrated with things. But don't blame them. Right. It's your own flesh. Right. So that's why I really like this chapter. It's super short. It's going to be everyone's favorite chapter in the book because it's super short. Um, but anyway, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think that's uh, an illustration even of spiritual understanding. Um, in fact, I was listening to Scott Daniels' podcast uh, just yesterday. Uh, we were doing some driving, and and uh, and so I just had that playing while I was uh, driving, and and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And that when somebody else is walking in the flesh, it's really easy for me to see it. Uh, when I'm walking in the flesh, it's often very difficult to see it. And why is it so hard for me to see it? And it's because I have a tendency to blame others, like what you were saying. It's a it's a tendency to justify myself, uh, to explain away a situation or a response or whatever it is. Um, but to have that spiritual understanding, which by the way, that spiritual understanding, you know, it has a few different words. Uh, a theological word that's used uh, is illumination. Uh, the Spirit of God, this is how the Spirit of God works, by the way. A lot of people use the word illumination to say, oh, God, help us to understand this Bible passage. That's not illumination, okay? No, you can understand a text, fine. But understanding how that text applies to your life, that's hard. And what does that take? That takes the Spirit of God. That takes walking in the Spirit. So if you turn in your Bibles to like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, I'm just going to read through that passage as Charlie's working through it and used that illustration even. It just really resonated with this teaching about the Holy Spirit. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. You see, a worldly individual can read a Bible passage, they can understand it, but they're not going to apply it to their life. So often we as Christians, that's exactly what we do. But keep reading now. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is spiritual discernment. That's what Charlie's kind of talking through. And it's a very difficult thing to do. It takes an immense amount of humility to realize, you know what, that person sinned. Yep, my situation stinks. But you know what, my response God brought that trial into my life. How am I responding? That's illumination. So that was my thought. The thing that, the thought that went through my head is, it is so, we were talking about how difficult it is to see when we're walking in the flesh and one specific situation that I come in and encounter a lot or, or I have experienced a couple times, I don't know. It, I think when we, 
imagine ourselves recognizing that we're walking in the flesh. We're going to see ourselves living in obvious sin and recognize this is one of those works of the flesh. But I think the curveball that I get thrown enough, and I was just reading uh, The Tale of Three Kings last night. I'm still working through it. And it's the section where, like, you know, it's talking about wicked people having power and God gives them power and God uses them. And you're like, why? But I think it just made me think kind of not related, but sort of related. Man, when you are being sinned against, it's just as easy for you to be responding in your flesh because you are self-righteous, because you've not done anything wrong. And so often I think that God allows people to see what's going on in their heart And we assume it's going to be like, I'm living in sin and my brother Tim walks up and gently corrects me or you, Charlie. But what I don't expect is for me, for God to allow someone to sin against me. And then in that situation, maybe that person never finds out, you know, I never get a chance to, because God wants me to see my own sin. I I think that I, yeah, it's just, it's challenging to see your own sin. And especially when God uses someone sin against you as a way of showing you look how wicked you are and like look at how you fleshly your responses sure you're right sure you're not doing the wrong thing and they are but is the response that you have is that from the spirit that's just happened too many times probably keep happening yeah there's so much we could talk about here um i will just say back to tim your comment there's a phrase that i've said probably i think it's probably in the hundreds at this point the hardest thing God ever asks us to do is to humble ourselves. And uh, we like to exalt the idea of humility, but then to bridge it to Andy's comment, the moment I am, and let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt here, when I am suffering in an unjust way, like maybe I didn't do something that prompted the difficult circumstance or, or caused the reaction of someone, like, you know, I would say like, I was just minding my own business and this happened. Like this person did this or this happened to me. Uh, it's in those moments that it's the hardest to humble yourself and admit what's going on in your own heart when you feel like, and I know this has a, a lot of connotation to it, but when you feel like you're the victim and maybe rightfully so, and we can be victimized and react in the flesh. And we commonly will then use that as justification for not looking at the flesh. We'll justify what we did on the basis of, well, that was righteous because look what they did to me. And there are, you know, some exceptions to the rule. You know, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We would not say that that's never a possibility. But the reality is most of the time, my anger is not righteous. Like 99.9% of the time. Um, and even if I was being completely righteous and then I was sinned against, I can tell you what happens instantly. My flesh wants vengeance instantly. Um, and I think that's where Christ is such a a perfect picture of this. Obviously he's not a sinner. He doesn't have to deal with fleshly sinfulness, but he suffers unjustly. And what does he do? He humbles himself to the point of obedience, which is death on the cross. And we're called to follow him in that example. And, and that is, we realize the sanctification process where I want to get to the point where I could suffer unjustly for no other reason than to display the glory of God in my character. 
like to be like Christ in that way. And we often fall short, but that's, that's, that's the point where through our failure, we are prompted to be humble. And when I turn to God, repent, turn and humble myself, that's where he transforms me. And he actually will never overpower my will to accomplish that. He, he asks me to humble myself and let his spirit through his word change my character. And he does that daily through more problems and more difficulties and more weird, angry people. And, um, yeah, that's just what we're called to. And, uh, so anyway, that's question eight. Hopefully is helpful to think that through, you know, if you're, you're wondering like, am I walking in the spirit? And you're like, nah, I'm not walking in the spirit. We'll just recognize there's one alternative, <laughs> which is you're walking in the flesh. And, uh, none of us come at that from a position of righteousness. Every day we struggle with fleshly living. And the answer is if I've recognized it, we want to respond the right way, which is to turn and to humble ourselves. And, uh, we'll continue talking that process through in a couple of weeks with question nine, but, uh, hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.